Hi, and welcome to the podcast today. Um, a couple minutes before noon, we're going to talk with an expert, uh, my friend Dr. Andrea Mata, about the Perrysburg situation, because there were some questions that I had immediately after reading the article today uh, about the school board meeting last night. If you've seen any of my, uh, usually this stuff is on my Twitter. Um, and I, th- I think I might have mentioned it recently, maybe as recently as yesterday on the podcast, how um, we have seen, thanks to the COVID era, um, a great deal of failure of leadership. Concurrent to that is a lot of entitlement from the other side. And there's been a clash. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to find peace, compromise, negotiate successfully in a lot of ways. So we're going to come to the Perrysburg thing because I have questions about are these kids predators? Should they be playing sports? I think the obvious answer is there for that. And a lot of today is about um, details and decision making. Um, I chased after a podcast, Vox Conversations from Sean Eiling, and there was something about postmodernism that caught my eye. But that was from three days ago. I'm three podcast episodes late for this. So the latest one was... um, your gut instinct is usually wrong. Um, the host, Sean Eiling, talks with former Google data scientist Seth Stevens Davidowitz. I should be able to read that. It sounds like a Jewish last name. Author of Don't Trust Your Gut, Seth argues the way we make our decisions is wrong, outdated, and based on methods or conventional wisdom that lead us astray. Um, actually, let me... Well... We can talk about the Waterville situation where, ironically enough, there were so many people last night, the, the perfect place to have that meeting would have been an amphitheater. Um, I would love to see pure democracy make this happen. Get everybody who's able to vote on it, vote, and, it, and it's either a yes or a no. It seems like some younger people are for it to attract some things they would like. Some older people who maybe moved to Waterville for the quiet absolutely don't want it. Um, personally speaking, for the area, I think it would be a great type of venue that we do not have, that type of Huntington Center-sized venue, but outdoors. Um, it seems like the developer is being as responsible and, and as informative as he can. And even with that, a lot of people in Waterville don't want it. Um, you can let the data make the decisions, and one of those data points might be that area apparently is zoned for commercial, and the developer did bring up a good point. I, I, or a, a valid point, if a big box store came in here, it would create more of the havoc people seem to be averse to than the venue. So what happens potentially if the amphitheater doesn't happen, but as it's, as it's zoned as it is, something worse comes along and then there's some remorse saying, well, we wish we would have had the amphitheater as opposed to this. So maybe rezoning is a possibility. And again, I don't feel like this is up to me. So while they are part of our community at large, um, we don't live in the small community of Waterville. And in many ways, let the data make the decision. There are probably a lot of gut reactions going, we don't want this here. It's going to cause all kinds of havoc. That That is somewhat baseless. Like you don't know or you don't know what you actually mean by havoc. Will there be more people coming to visit? Yes. Could you have your mind changed and go, oh, actually, this has made the area a lot better my kid now has a job in the summertime um, and the havoc that you're envisioning won't happen. Our gut reactions are often way off base as that podcast talked about. 
when we make a a gut opinion, um, one of the examples I think was uh, they, they talked about opening a dentist office versus something else or a restaurant. I'll use the example of how about if I say, would you start a food truck right now? What's your answer? It's probably yes, because the food truck thing is booming right now, but you don't have the data to tell you whether or not we have already peaked, whether there are too many food trucks in the area already. Do you have the right type of cuisine to have a successful food truck? Or will that type of cuisine not work in this community? Um, I tracked down a girl on Twitter. Her name is Jerica. She opened the up. Mom is Filipino. She'd moved back to this area and started the truck up. Um, it seems to be doing really well. There was a hole in the market for that. Maybe there was a hole here because people didn't want or need it. Jerrica seems to be having some success. And I don't, I'm pretty sure she did not do the data. She just went on her passion. But passion all the time is not going to lead you to success. The data and decisions will be. Another great example is every time somebody says, we should have a Trader Joe's here. This market is ripe for a Trader Joe's. While that is your opinion and your gut and your conventional wisdom, other places like us have a Trader Joe's. Why can't we? Trust me, Trader Joe's has done an enormous amount of studying and surveying and focus groups and whatever data they can get their hand on. And as you might hear me say, they're letting the math, they're letting the data make the decisions. Just because, just because we want something doesn't mean it's right for a particular business. You can ask the same thing of the of the water field, of the guy who wants to put the amphitheater there. Let us see your information that says this will be as successful as you say. Um, one counterpoint uh, to what I say when it comes to your gut instinct, and I did read this, maybe even from a site like Vox, um, where this interview took place for the podcast I listened to. There are some that have a more accurate robotic machine-like, algorithmic gut instinct than others. Um, because instead of just going off their gut instinct time and time again, they have actually used data and built their brain by getting answers to support or refute their original opinions. Um, and if you do that over time your gut becomes far less emotional and more algorithmic and likely much more accurate than just going, oh yeah, we should definitely have a Trader Joe's here. Or you know what? We should have a Trader Joe's food truck. You have nothing to support that. Um, let me give you an example. There's a baseball manager, Buck Showalter, an older guy. He's been around the game a long, long time. And he gets gruff. He's not currently a manager. He gets gruff for being an old school manager going on his gut. But I have read plenty of him and quotes from him. And he is exactly what I described. He has made so many accurate baseball decisions over the years that his mind is basically like a CPU as opposed to another manager whose mind is not. Uh, or another younger manager who follows more of the data. Like this Buck Showalter guy is arguably the perfect manager. Wait a second. He's the manager of the Mets right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Mets are really successful. Sorry, I missed that. Um, I think data, if you go strictly by it, you will be more right more often than not. 
um, especially when it comes to sports. I'll give you another example. I'll try to keep it superficial. Um, when it comes to taking a picture out of a game, uh, you have a book of data going. At this point in the game, his character is that he doesn't have the endurance to get through it. He tires at this point in the game. I'm going to pull him out. Um, what the data can't see is why you still need the manager and the coach. Um, you have a guy out there. It's in his, he's in his fifth inning. Maybe he's starting to struggle a little bit, but you know he's having a tough time in his personal life. He's going through a divorce right now and the data can't tell you that stuff. That's where the human element is still absolutely important. Let's talk about the human element. In fact, the evil parts of it with my friend, Dr. Andrea Mata, about the hard situation that's happening in Perrysburg with the students accused of rape, plea bargaining it down, coming back to school, and more so, football practice. Hi! It's, it's us Hi. again for the third time in 10 minutes. <laughs> I am so sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'd like to hear about the locked out stuff, but uh, we'll, we'll roll through this and I'll catch up with you later because you have clients to get to and I have, I have some guests coming in. Um, oh, okay. So let me fast track us. Uh, a couple of Perrysburg kids last year, we've, we then found out earlier this year, um, were charged with some pretty serious sexual violence stuff, rape. It was pled down. The kids are about to be back at school. More than anything, they surprised their friends at football practice, and I can completely understand why mostly everyone would say playing a sport is a privilege, and that P word, I think, gets thrown a lot, uh, thrown around Perrysburg quite a bit. Um, so that's that would almost be inarguable. Um, but I wanted your perspective on this, Dr. Mata. Am I calling you Dr. Mata? Because yeah. me, your doctor, yeah. your Dr. Andrea. Um, you can call me Dr. Dr. Mata, Dr. Andrea, Dr. Dre, whatever you would like, Doc, Eric. Yeah, you know what? In all these years I've known you, I've never considered, you, considered calling you Dr. Dre, but I can see why your students would have. <laughs> um, I, I wanted your perspective on this because you are my expert when it comes to child psychology. And I know in this, my radar and antenna went up when the parents were concerned about these kids being like unsupervised in the hallways and the library. And then the bathroom comment came out, which connects to some other horrifyingly inaccurate accusations. And I think some of these parents might think that these kids are predators. I think that word was used. Are they? How can we know? I mean, I think the thing is that because they are the two boys are minors or i'm assuming they're boys um that they're minors there's not a lot of information like reputable i'll say reputable information that is allowed to kind of be put out with the public now that doesn't mean that you know the parents and the kids who know who these individuals are don't they, I mean, they probably already know who the individuals are because they went to the board meeting um, and to try to take a stand to raise their concerns. But then there's a lot of hearsay that goes along with that. So like me being an outsider, not being like directly involved, I don't actually know what these two individuals did. Um, I know what their charges are. Um, and I know that they have been placed on probation, but other than that, I can't say. And so I can see why the parents are concerned and because 
we get con- people get concerned when we don't have a lot of information and there's a lot of uncertainty going on. But I too was shocked by the idea that oh, like hey, and like the second line of the article that you had sent me, it's like the the second like, there's the major like the first big paragraph and then the second sentence is like and they still get to participate in sports, which really throws me off because I'm I'm with you like if. If you have done something where you were on probation, like, should you be allowed to participate in sports? Because they're, I mean, yes, those are mostly structured. However, that also allows for a lot of unstructured, unsupervised time um, that maybe is not in the best interest of other people that these individuals are going to be interacting with. And it doesn't showcase any level of punishment. You and I both know that athletes often, very talented athletes, get the benefit of the doubt, which they should not, as Deshaun Watson got to start a football game the other night after some hard things that he was accused of doing. Um, So I can totally table the, the sports aspect of this. You said there's a lot we don't know. What I think we can infer is this was a horrific, isolated incident. Not a pattern of be- mm-hmm. not a pattern of behavior, um, and right. I, I know with I think you mentioned as this has was pled down, um, there is no assessment before they get back involved with things, but there will be as a part of their probation. I would think since this was hopefully just one horrific isolated incident, and I'm not going to say boys being boys or kids being kids, um, because you know right from wrong at at this age. But when Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to give some parents who are questioning if there are predators in the hallways of where their kids are, we can answer that with some type of assessment. And that might give them some peace of mind. Right. And so that was the other thing that you and I were talking about this morning that I was surprised by, that they have not already conducted a risk assessment. It said, oh, you know, a sexual offending assessment will be done you know, kind of da 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 da, like eventually, and so that's what I was. I was shocked by that the that it hasn't that a risk assessment by a clinical psychologist has not already been done on these two individuals to say, okay, are so this is a one time thing right now. What is the risk that they will engage in this behavior in the future? There's assessments that can be done to kind of say, okay, are they a low risk, a moderate risk, or a high risk? And I was just shocked that it has not already been done because I think that would also kind of put parents' minds at ease if the board would have been able to say, like, hey, we've taken all this stuff. We've done an assessment. There's a low risk. They are a low risk. Hopefully they would be a low risk. If they're not a low risk, then I don't think I don't see why they would be going be allowed back in the school in general. And, you know, anyways. But so assuming that they're low risk, that I would think that that would put some parents' minds at ease. And then maybe like in addition to like probation, and maybe this is just part of it, like what are some of those expectations? Like how are they going to learn from, what are they going to learn? What things are they going to have to do in order to kind of prevent themselves from doing this behavior again. One of those. Um, so like I had mentioned earlier, like maybe instead of participating in sports, maybe they should be required to do community service. Yeah. Um, to kind of learn, 
learn those expectations and then maybe later down the road once they've kind of passed and maybe that's in the probation like that's another thing like we don't know what all is going to be included in their probation requirement and maybe that is a requirement like you have to pass all of your probationary kind of things before you are allowed to play you know participate in sports let let me ask you this uh which has not been covered which is why i'm glad that we're talking about this if you were to assess them what signs would you be on the lookout for that would feed into these parents' fears that this is an incubation period for future predators and or these these kids did an awful thing and they will never do this again? What signs would you look for? What questions would you ask them? I think the biggest question is like whether or not they are taking responsibility for their actions and whether or not they are showing remorse. I think those are the first two big ones that I would look at. Are they, like, have they, do they acknowledge that they messed up and that they are now saying that they regret it, that they are remorseful, that they want to learn how to never have this done for them never to do it again. I'm going to go deep. Um, I hold, think those hold, are. I want to go deeper. Go I want to. I want to go deeper because you're giving me a v- very vanilla answer. I want to tap into what makes you what you are and what makes you great at what you do. Psychopaths, as we know, can fake contrition. Mm-hmm. What signs would you look for to come out of a room with them, an assessment, and go to a principal, whoever, and say, "I think we have a problem here." Oh. So without a doubt, I would, like, if I was doing the assessment, I would give them what's known as the MMPIA. So it's the Minnesota Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory, specifically for adolescents. Um, and so it gets into, uh, yes, people can lie on these things, uh, can lie, but a lot of the time you cannot lie on an assessment such as the MMPI because there's what's called validity scales. And so I would hope that whoever is assessing them for their sexual offending is possibly using one of these personality assessments that's going to look at whether or not they have more psychopathic tendencies. But as you should know, that before the age of 18, we can't actually give a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, which is the disorder for quote unquote. Nope, I'm still here. There you go. Um, yeah, it's it's precarious territory, which I'm, I'm glad you threw that out. Uh, under 18, it can be hard to, to really plant things down. Um, I don't want to keep you much longer. You answered my questions. Do you want to answer any more questions that are floating out there about something like this? Um, I thought with the one article that you sent me, I thought the, the grandmother, Geneva Mason, raised a really great question. And she goes, what are we doing to protect our kids against sexual assault? And so that's something that I was intrigued by. And I thought, that's a great question. But then I also went into another question that I often find myself asking kind of people in society is, whose responsibility is it to teach our children about sexual assault? and appropriate boundaries and what is and what is not okay. Is that the responsibility of the school? Is that the responsibility of parents? Like whose responsibility is that? I think the answer- I don't know if you have a thought on that. I do, I do. And it's really cloudy right now. Um, I'll start in the present and go backwards from what I've seen going into schools. And this was even happening 
before COVID, there was a lot more parenting and guidance needing mm-hmm. needing to be done in school. That's why I think so many teachers and other people in schools have decided to leave because it went things be, began to go well beyond teaching because many home mm-hmm. structures were failing. I think the answer is easy for you or I. We went to school to learn and be taught things in books, history and math and things like that. And you learned interpersonal etiquette from your parents and or whoever right. was supposed to be watching you at home. But as that home structure has faltered, as we got out of school, a lot more of that has fallen on, on the teachers. So as everybody likes to, the buzzword, everybody likes to use, there are gaps. Mm-hmm. Do you, I'm right. guessing you agree. What would your answer be? My answer would be the same as yours. Like, absolutely. I think the we need to we need to fortify families and we need to give parents the individual coping skills and the parenting skills and the relationship skills so that they can pass those skills down to their children. Uh, teachers went to got their education to teach people how to learn and how to do math and how to read and all of those things, they didn't go to school to provide social and emotional skills. Yeah. Like, yes, that comes kind of with a territory, but they don't get trained on that. They have other things that they have to learn. And so I much rather teach my child individual coping skills, relationship skills, how to get along, how to succeed, and then have a teacher kind of fill in my gaps because I don't know how to teach my kids how to read. Like I can help them like, yes, what sound does that letter make? But ultimately like I, I'm at a loss at how to actually teach a child to read. I want a teacher to teach my child how to read, but I don't necessarily want my teachers to feel overwhelmed because now they have to teach my child how to read and provide them with social skills and, um, relationship skills and coping skills. Yep. That's why there's so much additional training and they bring in people like us to offer some of those things. Um, mm-hmm. The next, uh, we have been, as we are now for for quite some time, the next podcast that we can do is um, you can tell me whether or not my theory that I started to kick around in like 2015 or 2016 um when the uh, the every kid gets a trophy generation began to be a parent, mm. and yeah, and I've seen it now because like when I was at Perrysburg in January, uh, this was not when we were together. Or maybe it was a different time. Mm-hmm. Like I am, some of these kids could be my kids, and so that means their parents are my age or younger, and maybe they were they were part of the generation. Every kid got a trophy, and when you're not told no, it's it's really hard to know the boundaries and no proper punishments and to bring some and, and to parent your own child. And you wind up with terrible instances like this. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would agree. Like that would be an interesting conversation to have and kind of going back to the other one. It's like, cause you mentioned like, Oh yeah, this is why schools can bring people like you and bring people like me in to kind of give those, extra, you know, programming, those extra talks on social skills and relationship skills and coping skills, those kind of things. And so I want to give a shout out to our friend, Bill Berry, who's the president of Cardinal Stritch, who does those things. So he hired me last year to come in and do 10 coping skills sessions with his fifth through 12th graders on a variety of topics. And then I believe we are currently in the process of kind of 
figuring out what do the, what does that programming look like now? But again, like whose responsibility, like he, like the school Cardinal Stritch is having to, you know, pay that, pay, you know, my fee to come in and do those, those skills. And so is it the expectations that now the schools are having to pay for, you know, consultants to come in and provide those, that programming? The irony is if you went back to the old days of, the Catholic schools being ruled by nuns with an iron fist or iron ruler. That's Bill Berry. And here he is wanting to get involved with emotional learning. But um, thanks for the time. This is a good, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. And uh, I'm sure anybody that listened to this, not that the par- not that the privileged Berg people will be, but you provided some helpful insight because there were some pretty scary words from parents that were probably completely unnecessary. Um, but thank you. Cause nobody knows this stuff, especially with kids like you do. All right. Well, thanks, Eric. I'll talk to you later. Go Buckeyes! Go Bucks. Bye.